C.S. Lewis once wrote, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Think about that for a moment. For many of us, the most dangerous temptation we face is to make Christianity moderately important. To have a little Christianity with our regular lives. Let's not stand out. Let's not go overboard here on this faith thing. Sure, we can go to church here and there, do some good deeds, but let's not allow this to overtake our lives. Let's follow Jesus, but not so much that it causes any backlash. Sometimes the temptation takes a milder form. Let's not worry about what's doing, what, about doing what's right. Just lighten up. Watch some Netflix. Drink some wine. Relax. Make enough money to provide for your family and support your hobbies and vacations. But live for yourself. Don't stick your neck out for others. It's too much work. It's thankless anyways. We can't make a difference. Now, I'm not down on movies or relaxation. Full disclosure, as an avid Avengers fan, I cannot wait to go see Infinity War later this week with my boys. But when I read this passage for today, I'm convicted to take my faith up a notch, to stoke the fire a bit, to take it to the next level, and I hope you are too. We're starting a series today on the book of 2 Timothy we've titled, Keep the Faith. I'll be honest and admit, I didn't know a lot about this obscure little book before preparing for today. But as I've studied, I've been impressed with how this letter written nearly 2,000 years ago still has a message we need to hear today. Before we get to our passage for today, I wanna spend several minutes giving some background to the letter because I think it will help us in the next eight weeks of our series. To get at the context for this letter, I'm synthesizing both materials we learned from the entire letter of 2 Timothy and also from the account of Paul's missionary journeys told to us in the book of Acts. The letter begins with the standard greeting used in the first century, the author, Paul, the recipient, Timothy, and greetings. Let's start with the apostle Paul. Paul has given nearly his entire life to spreading the news about Jesus Christ. He's traveled, preached, set up churches, and mentored all over modern-day Turkey. He's been beaten, captured, imprisoned, and each time let go, until now. We're told in chapter 1, verse 8, Paul's a prisoner, and in chains in chapter two, verse nine. But this is no minimum security prison like he had in Rome in Acts 28. This time, he's in a cold dungeon, thus 4.14's request to bring his cloak that was off the beaten path. Thus he praises one friend because when he was in Rome, he searched for me, 117. According to chapter four, verse 16, the first hearing of his trial did not go well, and he expects death is imminent. Chapter four, verses six to eight. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and my time for departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. And he's right. Tradition places Paul's execution around 67 AD in Rome under the Emperor Nero. 
Most likely what's happened is that after Acts chapter 28, when the book ends, Paul is released from prison only to embark on a fourth missionary journey. He's arrested again and imprisoned for nine months, during which time he writes to Timothy, asking three times for him to visit. Do your best to come to me quickly. Paul asks for Timothy to come visit for both practical and personal reasons. The practical reason is he needs some basic necessities. In the first century, prisoners were not provided for by the state. They relied on friends and family to provide food, water, clothing. It's clear from what Paul says in chapter 1, 15 to 18, that no one else is standing by him to help him except Onesiphorus, God bless him. He needs Timothy's support. But there's a personal reason too. He needs not only the physical necessities, he needs some emotional support too. He's lonely. I long to see you that I may be filled with joy, chapter one, verse four. And more importantly, facing imminent death, he wants to make sure Timothy knows he's Paul's successor. Paul's seeking to ensure a seamless transition plan here for church leadership. He has specific pieces of advice and encouragement he wants to give Timothy. He knows Timothy well, both his strengths and his vulnerabilities, and he tailors his final words of encouragement to him personally. And this is part of what makes the letter such an interesting read, Paul and Timothy's relationship. It's clear they have a deep friendship. Paul greets him in chapter one, verse two, is my dear son and my son whom I love elsewhere. According to chapter one, verse four, they had a tearful goodbye and Paul longs to see him that he may be filled with joy. Elsewhere, Paul says of Timothy, I have no one else like him. He proved himself as a son with a father and he has served with me in the work of the gospel. There are a number of reasons why Paul has no one like Timothy. For starters, we know from Acts 14, six and seven, Paul was instrumental in bringing Timothy to faith in Christ during his first visit to Timothy's hometown. Years later, when Paul returns in Acts 16, one to three, Timothy's the rising star of faith in his hometown. Paul's impressed, and so he decides to take him with him on his next journey, and the rest is history. The two work closely together for the next 15 years, spreading the message of Jesus and starting churches. But it may be even more significant of a mentoring relationship given Timothy's own background. Acts 16, one to three describes Timothy whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. Timothy has one parent who is more interested in the Christian faith than the other. We don't know why. But it's clear from chapter one, verse five, that the legacy of Christian faith was passed down from Timothy's grandmother to his mother, not his father. But there's some, maybe there's some comfort in that for some of us here. Sure, it'd be nice if both parents modeled Christian faith for their children, but if they don't, that doesn't mean the kids are working with less. God can still use the influence of one or two family members to impact a child. And that was certainly the case with Timothy. Perhaps that is why Paul takes a special interest in Timothy, to serve as that spiritual role model for him he never had in his father. 
For whatever reason, the two form a deep friendship and bond. Now I wanna pause for just a moment here to think about the impact a significant mentoring relationship can have on a person's spiritual growth. Can you think of someone like that who had an impact on you? Maybe to a lesser extent. Maybe it was a Sunday school teacher, or a youth pastor, or a youth group volunteer, a Bible study leader in university, a mentor mom at MOPS, or a seasoned professional in your field of work. This is the body of Christ at its best, friends. Mature believers mentoring and nurturing younger believers. We are meant to be a community that fosters these kinds of relationships, but there are many barriers to that kind of community forming. Let me speak briefly to just two. Those who are younger, and that could be teenagers, grad students, young professionals, or young families, are to have a posture of learning from those who are older. Now this stands in direct opposition to our culture's emphasis on youthfulness and homogeneity. To be sure, there's something wonderful about connecting with people in the same age and stage of, as us, but we also deprive ourselves of an important perspective when we sideline those different decades from influencing us. Just because someone doesn't tweet doesn't mean they're obsolete. I worked hard on that, yes, thank you. It was late. Just think what Timothy would have missed out on had he allowed Paul's receding hairline to dictate the depth of the relationship. Now let me be very candid. We have some amazing, mature people in our congregation. I am unapologetically very biased about this. Many of our mature people are sharp, wise, gracious, and you might just want to get to know them. Ask them to breakfast before work or spend a few minutes talking with them when you pick up your kids in the nursery. Many of them are serving there. And if you want to get connected to someone in a more ongoing mentoring relationship, let someone on our staff know we'd be glad to try and connect you. Those who are more mature here, and that could be parents of teenagers, empty nesters, or retirees, are to have a posture of serving and blessing. This too is countercultural. Why waste your time helping others? You're retired, you've earned a break. Besides, they wouldn't wanna hang out with you anyway. You're not hip enough or cool enough. Let me be very candid. First, we never retire from joining God in his work to build his kingdom. Do you see how many young people we have here? Some of them are Timothys, eager for someone to invest in them. Will you make time for them? And second, according to research from the Fuller Youth Institute, and this is good news for all of us, especially me, warm is the new cool. And by that, I mean people aren't looking for someone who is cool and hip. They want someone warm, someone who will listen to them, care for them, get to know them. Do you know how rare that is today? You offer that to someone regardless of their age and your outdated jeans and shoes won't matter. 
If you want to invest in something bigger than yourself, talk with one of us on staff. We would love to see you flourish in that way. All of us, regardless of our age, need to look around this room and think about who we can learn from and who we can invest in. With that lengthy introduction aside, let's spend the remainder of our time looking at Paul's words in 2 Timothy 1, verses 6 to 14. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This purpose was, this grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. I see three keys to helping us all keep the faith sincerely. Paul touches on these in his introduction here, and he's gonna address these more in detail in the rest of the letter. First, sincere faith works in cooperation with God's spirit. Paul's first admonition to Timothy is to remind him in verse six to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. The emphasis isn't so much here on how little the flame is, Remember, he's just praised Timothy's sincere faith in verse five. Rather, the emphasis is on how Timothy needs to take action to kindle this flame afresh. God's spirit is already there inside Timothy. It's a gift he's received, and yet he can't rely on the spirit to do it all. He's gotta blow on it, stoke it, make it stronger. He must work alongside God's spirit to see growth. That kind of relationship between our part and God's part in spiritual growth is a common theme in Paul. God saves us by his grace. We cannot earn it. But that doesn't mean we don't exert any effort in living our faith. Grace and earning are opposed, but grace and effort are basic Bible. We see this tension in verse nine. He has saved us and called us to a holy life not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. The holy life we're called to doesn't just happen. We don't just drift into holiness. We get there by intentional effort, fanning into flame the gift God has given us. Certainly, we can't get there by effort alone. We need God's spirit, which he gives us and which dwells in us, verse 14 says. 
but the presence of God's spirit does not negate the role of human agency. We work in cooperation with God's spirit to grow spiritually. So it's worth asking ourselves this morning, which aspect am I underemphasizing right now? Am I focused only on what I'm doing and therefore unaware of the Spirit's presence with me? Or am I focused only on God's part, refusing to exert any effort or intentionality in seeking transformation in my life? When we combine God's Spirit and our effort, there will be results. Second, sincere faith endures opposition with hope. Enduring hardship is a big theme in this book, as we'll see in the coming weeks. And that makes sense. Paul's in prison, about to die, all because he shared the message of Jesus Christ. Look at verse eight. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Join, me, join with me in suffering for the gospel. That join with me in suffering means literally bearing evil treatment. Now, let me be real clear at the outset. Paul is not saying we're to enjoy suffering in general. Suffering in its general form, disease, death, natural disasters, according to Paul in Romans 8 and elsewhere, is the result of living in a fallen world, a world that is not the way it's supposed to be and won't be restored until Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom fully. In fact, the proper response to that kind of suffering is to groan inwardly as we wait eagerly, Romans 8:23. The kind of suffering Paul is talking about here is enduring for the sake of the gospel. It's suffering we experience from opposition for advancing God's cause. We're to be willing to experience the consequences of being committed wholeheartedly to him. For Timothy, that meant being willing to associate with a common criminal in a Roman dungeon. In ancient Near East culture of honor and shame, it would undoubtedly bring shame on Timothy to identify with Paul. Then, as now, there was a stigma around those imprisoned, but Paul urges Timothy, don't let that stop you from being faithful to me and God's gospel. Let your reputation take the hit. When I read this passage, I think of the lawn signs I see in this neighborhood. I know it sounds random, let me explain. The power of the lawn sign is that it says, I'm in, I stand behind this. I am willing to be associated with this school or this candidate or this ethic. And the hope is that when your neighbors see your support of that particular organization, they too will be likely to consider it for themselves. This passage forces us to ask the question, are we willing, metaphorically speaking, to put up our lawn sign for Jesus, for our Christian faith? Where are we tempted to disassociate ourselves from him? Now, I'm not talking about distancing ourselves from those who may claim Christian faith and are not acting like it. I'm talking about being willing to let our faithfulness to Jesus Christ cost us something. Maybe it'll cost us time by serving others. Maybe it'll cost us money by generously giving to others. Maybe it'll cost our reputation at work or among friends. We don't need to go looking for opposition friends, it'll come. 
And when it does, we can take it as a sign we've done something right. Sincere faith endures such opposition in hope. Third and finally, sincere faith roots itself in God's word. It's great to be all in and willing to sacrifice for a cause, but it had better be the right cause. And so, Paul gives this final command in verses 13 to 14. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Spirit. We'll see in a few weeks that one of the challenges Timothy has were teachers who were twisting the gospel message. So this is particularly urgent for Timothy. But you know what? It is for us too. We swim in an ocean of values, priorities, advice, ways to orient our lives. Some of them are good. Many of them are either slightly at variance or completely opposite what God has laid out for us as the good way to live. But we're so accustomed to swimming in the water, we don't recognize it anymore. That's why we've got to come regularly to his word and encounter its truths. It's why we devote a portion of our worship services to understanding what the Bible means for us. It's why we crack open the Bible in our growth group conversations. It's why we encourage individual, regular Bible reading here. Most of the time, we just need a slight course correction. A couple of degrees. Now, a couple of degrees may not seem like much here, but you extend that line out far enough, and suddenly, we are way off from true north. Whether it's on our morning commute, while exercising, or in some quiet time ourselves, let's commit afresh to finding ways to allow God's word to course correct us, even if just by a couple of degrees. Sincere faith roots itself in God's word. There's one final part of this I've only hinted at that bears elaboration. The assurance of God's faithfulness in all this You know, for a guy facing death, Paul seems pretty confident. Listen to what gives him hope. The Holy Spirit's indwelling presence bookends his exhortation in verses 6 to 14. Verse 6, the Spirit which is in you. And verse 14, the Holy Spirit who lives in us. The Spirit, in verse 9, enables Timothy to live a life of power, love, and self-discipline. Some scholars translate that word wisdom. One commentator noted that when power gets divorced from love, it quickly becomes destructive and demonic. And oh, how we have seen that. But love without power is wishy-washy sentimentality. In other words, we need both power and love truth and grace. The call of this Christian is always both. We get in the fight for injustice, but we do so with love and wisdom. And if you think that sounds dangerous, you're right, which is exactly why we're to be prepared to endure opposition by the power of God, verse 7. And in case we've forgotten that power, he reminds us of it in verses 9 to 10. The power of the one who called us by his purpose and grace before the beginning of time. This river gets traced back long before you and I arrive on the scene, friends. No matter how much effort we put into it, this is God's project. He will see it through to the end. He will see it done. 
He is the ultimate guarantor of the gospel, not us. And nothing can stand in his way of that, not even death. Verse 10, Christ Jesus has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Staring in the face of death, of course, Paul knows the threat of death. Death is a constant reminder that we are not home yet, that Jesus has not yet fully established his kingdom here on earth. But because of Christ's resurrection, Paul can celebrate the certainty of death's destruction. Christ has rendered death powerless, ineffective, and given us life and immortality, verse 11. And then this glorious assurance in verse 12. I know whom I've believed in, and I am convinced he is able to guard what I've entrusted him to that day. I'd really like to see you, Timothy, before I die, but if I don't, it doesn't matter. I'm on solid rock here. And so a sincere faith is really a secure faith. Secure not in ourselves, but in God. Securing God who conceived of this project long before the beginning of time. Securing God who sent Jesus, the one who not only showed us how to live, but also dealt death its final blow. Securing the God who is with us now, his spirit indwelling us with power, love, and wisdom. City Church, let us not be people guilty of making our faith moderately important. Let us not coast in the sea of mediocrity and ambivalence our culture, dare say, even at times our Christian culture encourages. We're saved, called, equipped, empowered, indwelt by God's spirit. So let's turn it up a notch. Let's stoke that fire. Let's keep the faith in a way that's sincere. Let's cooperate with God's spirit to grow. Let's endure opposition that comes our way with hope, realizing we follow in the footsteps of a crucified Lord. And let's stay grounded on the path by seeking the Spirit's wisdom from the Bible. For as Paul writes elsewhere, the one who calls is faithful and he will do it. Let's pray. Oh God, we give you thanks. Over 2,000 years ago, you called Paul to yourself. You revealed who you were. You set him on a trajectory to be your servant, to proclaim your message. And you put others around him. Thank you that by your spirit, you inspired him to write these words to Timothy, to the church in Ephesus, and by extension to us. Thank you that your spirit has preserved these words for these years. May that same spirit now be at work in us, your church. Holy Spirit, do your translating work for each one of our ears. Where is it that we need to press into you? Where is it that we need to turn it up a notch and follow you more wholeheartedly? Help us to hear, help us to obey, give us courage and strength. Give us power to walk with you, even to the cross, to endure whatever suffering may come our way, for you are worth it. And protect us, your church, by your truth, that we would be a place who stands firm in your word. May it be so, for Jesus' sake, amen.